Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Victoria Mackenzie, on her debut novel, For Thy Great Pain, Have Mercy on My Little Pain. Victoria Mackenzie is a fiction writer and poet. She is the winner of the Scottish Book Trust New Writer Award and the inaugural Emerging Writer from Moniac Moor. She was shortlisted for the Lucy Cavendish Fiction Prize, as well as being awarded prestigious writing residencies in Scotland, Finland and Australia. And today we're going to be talking about Victoria's debut novel, which is For Thy Great Pain, Have Mercy on My Little Pain. Victoria, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Tell us how you would describe the novel, first of all. Sure. So it's a short novel about two women, Marjorie Kemp and Julian of Norwich, both of whom were real women who lived in Norfolk in the early 15th century. And what's interesting about these two women is the books that they left behind. So Julian of Norwich wrote about the visions of Christ that she had in a very famous theological text, Revelations of Divine Love. And this book is one of the, well, it's the first known book in English by a woman. Uh, Marjorie Kemp was possibly illiterate because she didn't write her book as far as we know. She dictated it to a scribe or a series of scribes. Um, And her book, The Book of Marjorie Kemp, which is what we call it, um, is the first known autobiography in English, um, whether by a man or a woman. So they're hugely significant women in the history of women's writing in English. As I said, they both claim to have visions of Christ. And what really interested me about them and why I wrote this book is, firstly, they were so different from one another, even though they were contemporaries. So Marjorie was a a mother of 14. She was the wife of a, a wealthy merchant. She came from a wealthy merchant's family. And she's someone who is very much in the world. She travelled, she, she went on pilgrimages, she worked as an alewife, um, making ale in, in her town, which was uh, Bishop's Lynn, which is now known as King's Lynn. And she, most significantly, she talked about her visions of Christ all the time, um, as far as we can tell from her book. To anyone who would listen, she would even stand in the street and speak about them. And this was very bold of her, um, outrageous even, because this was at a time when for a woman to claim to have visions of Christ risked accusations of heresy and she was she was arrested for heresy 
and heresy was something that you could be burnt at the stake for. So Marjorie risked her life repeatedly by talking about her visions. Julian seems to have had a very different approach. As far as we know, she didn't really speak about her visions to very many people, possibly confided in one or two, but she wrote about them and she became an anchoress at some point in her life, which means that she lived in a single room attached to the church of St Julian in Norfolk. And she couldn't leave this room on pain of excommunication. So she was someone who sought seclusion, which is obviously a very different approach from Marjorie, who put herself out there. And I was I was so interested. I've always been interested in nuns. I've always been interested in people who live their lives according to very strict rules or have very strict ideas about what makes for a good life. And an anchoress is just an even more extreme form of being a nun, if you like. So it was just one room. She couldn't leave it, as I say, on pain of excommunication. So she would have felt she was risking her very soul even to leave the room. And as far as we know, she spent around 30 years in there and died there. And this idea of being an anchoress was was mesmerising to me. And so I started initially to write a novel about Julian of Norwich. But once I started my research, I quickly discovered the existence of Marjorie Kemp. And then I discovered that these two very different women actually met and decided quite quickly that I wanted that to be uh, where my novel was going. The, the climax of the novel would be this meeting between these two really different women. And yeah, so that's the kind of that's the kind of setup, and that's who these women were. But I also wanted to explore a number of different themes that hopefully crop up in the novel. So the position of women in, in medieval England was very interesting to me. But I explore other sort of broader themes as well. I was writing it during the pandemic. So this idea of, of being an anchoress was interesting, given that we were all in lockdown at the time of writing it. It was a time of plague when Julian and Marjorie lived. So obviously there's some kind of resonances there with, with us living through the pandemic. But I also wanted to explore things like motherhood, uh, grief, uh, mental illness, um, these kinds of things. And I just felt these two women were a fantastic lens um, to explore some of those ideas. So the book is, well, both women tell their life stories. So the book is, contents of the book is over a long time span, but the actual events of the book, the sort of the pivotal meeting, is in 1413. So tell us a bit more. You've alluded to a few things, but tell us a bit more what the country was like, what Norfolk was like in 1413. Well, it's interesting studying the medieval period for me because I'm not a medievalist and it was something quite new to me. And once I started doing some research, so some social history, um, finding out about what people wore and ate and how they passed their time, I absolutely loved it because it felt like a time period that was very tangible. I got very interested in the physicality of the world. So Norfolk was the second city of England at this time. So it was it was a bustling place to live uh, where, where Julian lived. Um, a lot of traders, the River Wensum was an important docking area with uh, ships coming from Northern Europe. So it was, it was diverse in that there were lots of travellers there, um, pilgrims bringing different goods from Europe, um, so foods and textiles and so on, but also different languages, different ideas. So Norfolk and Norwich were was an incredibly sort of vibrant place. And Bishop's Lynn, where Marjorie lived, was similar in a way. It's also on the coast. It was not such a, a big or significant um, town as Norwich, but it, it wasn't a place that was, um, it wasn't a backwater, put it that way. 
So both women were probably exposed to, you know, some of the contemporary ideas at the time. So 1413 is a Catholic country and it's clearly it's pre, pre-Reformation, but there was sort of proto-Reformation ideas in circulation. There was certainly been a translation of the Bible into English and there were certainly conversations about the role of the church the role of priests, whether they always had to intercede between a person and God. And Marjorie, um, one of her priests when she was younger, he was actually burnt at the stake for heresy, for being a part of a sect known as the Lollards, who believed that the Bible should be in English. And so there were sort of some radical ideas in circulation. And so Norfolk was a very interesting place to be. In terms of the position of women, I learned a great deal that I didn't know anything about before. But what really surprised me is that women actually had a bit more power and autonomy than I was expecting when I began my research. So I'm at pains in the novel to indicate this in small ways. For example, Marjorie worked at times, including being an alewife, as I've mentioned, um, which obviously just gave her a little bit more independence, a little bit more um, power over family, money, that kind of thing. And they inherit um, as well, which is yes, something that obviously exactly. wouldn't happen a bit later on. Yes, exactly. So um, women's rights seem to take a step backwards as, as the centuries rolled on to towards the 19th century, say. So yeah, that was fascinating to me that Julian could actually inherit from her mother. I fictionalise this because we know almost nothing about Julian's life. All that we know about her is from her book, Revelations of Divine Love. And she's very reticent about herself. Um, She includes very little detail about her life. So I had much more of a blank canvas when it came to creating, creating Julian's history. And I've, you know, I've given her a a husband and, and a child, which, you know, she may have had. I didn't try to do anything that I thought was impossible, but I have, you know, it's a novel. There's, there's certainly fictionalizations there. With Marjorie, we know a lot more about her personal life because she's much more forthcoming in her autobiography. You know, she does talk about her visions a lot, but it's also the story of her. Um, she's centre stage, so she does make reference to her, her marriage, her children, her jobs, um, her feelings about, you know, neighbours and people that she knows and so on. So I didn't have quite such a blank canvas for Marjorie. She was someone who was already quite present in her book. You obviously alluded to the fact that she's an anchoress and that Julian spent the latter part of her life. Um, she's uh, in late middle age when she when she becomes an anchoress. And, and obviously you mentioned that you've given her um, a, a husband and a child. We can, we can assume we'd have to talk about what happens to them, but we can assume because of the fact that she's going to go into this um, seclusion for the rest of her life that something has. So you did allude to this a little bit, but tell us a bit more about what the life of an anchoress would have been like. So an anchoress, it's the same as being an anchorite. It's just the female term. And it's someone who takes a vow, much like being a nun or a monk. They take a vow in church um, to live this life in a single room. So it's It's different from being a hermit because hermits often had freedom to wander. And that was slightly more dangerous if you were a woman. So if a woman wanted to live this sort of life of dedication to to their religious faith, they were more likely to become an anchoress than a hermit. Their lives varied. I mean, I have read about anchoresses that could leave their cells, for example, to wander the church grounds. 
but I was more interested in those that lived more extreme lives. So I, I chose to make Julian quite an extreme form of anchoress. But we do know that she lived in this room attached to the Church of St. Julian in, in Norwich. She does describe the three windows that I, I describe in my novel. So um, there was a very narrow cruciform window in her cell that looked directly into the church so she could take part in mass and any other um, ceremonies, and she could also um, give her confession. There was another window that looked out onto the street, and this would have been King Street, quite a busy thoroughfare in Norwich, so she'd have had a, seen a lot of passing traffic. And I liked, as I say, I really liked the physicality of this period. So I enjoyed thinking about the, the noises, the smells that would have reached Julian um, through this window into her cell. And then the final window, um, she would have had a, a maid to help take care of her, just a necessity. And that was one of the things that did interest me about being an anchoress. It's all very well to decide to live this life of great spirituality, but you can't avoid the fact that you have a body and as a bodily being, you have bodily needs. And I really enjoyed juxtaposing that kind of earthiness of a woman who'd need to eat, she'd need to defecate. She'd need to think about how she kept herself relatively clean. So I really, yeah, I really enjoyed thinking about the physicality of her as a body in the cell and how cooped up her body might have felt, the changes that her body might have experienced. So, yeah, she had this maid who lived in, the, in a room next to her who, who took care of her, who took her slops, who brought her food, um, who brought her anything else that she might have needed, you know, sort of needle and thread, that kind of thing. And presumably because she did we'd know that she did write this book while she was in her cell must have brought her some kind of parchment or paper and ink we know that her room was very small and um, quite often anchoress's cells would be built on the north side of a church just to make it even colder and more miserable for themselves essentially so there was there was you know certainly quite a sense of privation there a lot of denial and yet for me once I really started to imagine this life I quite quickly began to appreciate the sense of freedom that must have come from it as well because as a medieval woman you, you didn't have many life choices open to you other than marriage and most likely motherhood some women would have chosen to become nuns if that other life really didn't appeal but I had this sense of Julian. She had these visions before she was an anchoress. And I felt that perhaps she became an anchoress because she felt these visions were important, that God had given them to her for a reason and that she wanted to spend time reflecting on them. And I thought, well, you know, nuns actually have incredibly busy timetables with praying and singing, often doing community work, uh, taking care of you know, the garden. They were great administrators. So I thought perhaps she became an anchoress as a way of giving herself the freedom to think, the freedom to have time to reflect and contemplate and to write. And I really liked thinking about that paradox that for us, an anchoress seems an incredibly deprived life, an incredibly unfree life, just trapped in one small room. And yet mentally, perhaps it was a way for a woman to have some freedom. And I just, yeah, found that paradox really interesting to think about. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Victoria McKenzie and we're talking about her debut novel, For Thy Great Pain, Have Mercy on My Little Pain. And Victoria, let's talk a little bit more about the two books because you mentioned that Julian's is the first recorded book in English by a woman and Marjorie's is the first autobiography by anybody. And it's incredible that these books survive, you know, medieval books are incredibly rare and, and wondrous things. But both of these people were writing about something that they shouldn't have even been writing about in the first place. So it's even more remarkable that these two books managed to, to outlive them. And so tell us how, how do we know about these books? Well, um, the Marjorie story is fascinating. The book, her manuscript went missing for hundreds of years. And the only uh, trace of it that people had for a long time was a a few excerpts by, I think he was a monk called Winkin de Word. Um, And I sort of talk about this a little bit in my epilogue. And he mistakenly thought Marjorie was an anchoress herself, which if you get to know Marjorie at all, is a kind of comic idea because she's someone who's so much in the world, who's so not contemplative but is a very loud, demonstrative, boastful woman who's very involved in her community. And it wasn't until the 1930s that her manuscript surfaced in the most fluky manner. There was a a ping pong game happening in in a manor house in Suffolk and a guest trod on a ping pong ball and so a, a spare was needed. A cupboard was raided for a ping pong ball and while the guests were were looking for it, some old books fell out, which the owner of the house felt were junk and that probably should be disposed of. But luckily for scholars of medieval period and for anyone who loves Marjorie Kemp, one of the guests 
thought that perhaps they were of significance and it turned out to be the lost manuscript of the book of Marjorie Kemp. So we've only had this book for less than 100 years. So, yeah, so it's an incredibly fluky, as I say, fluky story of how we still have this. And no one knows how it ended up in that cupboard with the ping pong balls. But there is something kind of gloriously Marjorie about that. She is quite haphazard and comedic. And I I just think she'd probably find the story quite amusing herself. I don't know. With Julian, again, there's just so many um, blanks and mysteries to these manuscripts, to both of them. With Julian, we don't know what she did with it after it was written. And I should say that for both women, the original manuscripts have never turned up. The one um, that turned up in Suffolk was, a, I think, a 15th century copy. But nonetheless, it was a copy, not the original of the Book of Marjorie Kemp. The Julian's original has never been found either, but probably made its way somehow to France, where um, some English nuns were known to have made copies They were persecuted and travelled back to England and brought these copies with them. So they were kept safe by a group of women. But I think, yeah, that's that's really all we know. The medieval scholar Yanina Ramirez made a wonderful documentary a few years ago about Julian's manuscript, which I really recommend uh, sometimes surfaces on iPlayer or YouTube. Um, and she she goes into more detail, but it was basically probably protected and and kept hidden by a group of women for hundreds of years. And what got, well, what got Marjorie into trouble, what would have potentially got Julian into trouble was the fact that they were both having visions and and writing about those visions. So what were these visions? So Julian had some kind of fever. Um, We don't know if it was plague or it was some other kind of um, sickness. And while she was very ill, she had a series of visions in quite quick succession. And she saw a number of things in these visions, um, including uh, visions of Christ, of Mary, of God, of heaven. And they were very vivid and very bodily. They're really quite extraordinary. And she describes them in Revelations of Divine Love. And I should say about Julian's book, there are two books within it, the short text and the long text. And in the short text, it's likely that she wrote that quite quickly after she'd had these visions, which occurred, you know, sort of just within a few days. She wrote them down quite hurriedly because she wanted to, um, she didn't want to forget them. She wanted to reflect on them. And the long text was probably what she wrote while she was an anchoress. Um, As its name suggests, it's much more extensive. And she's really trying to think about what God's meaning was by giving her these visions and showing her these scenes from the kingdom of heaven, showing her Christ dying very uh, vividly on the cross. You know, she talks about the rotting of his flesh, the desiccation of his flesh, his nose. She talks about uh, looking into the wound where the soldier you know, put a spear through his ribs. They're really, um, they're not abstract at all. It's very much a human body enduring a huge amount of suffering. And it's, it's very moving, these visions. And as far as we know, once Julian had had these 16 showings, she called them, in total, she didn't ever have visions again. But she did say that she could, she could reimagine them very vividly. It's almost like she could experience them again in her mind. And when she experiences them, she found that she could almost converse with God and ask him things and, and receive the answers. And it wasn't that she could exactly hear words, 
she sort of struggles to describe exactly how this conversation plays out. It's not a conversation like you and I are having. It's just somehow she knows what God is saying. She knows the answer. And she has conversations with him about all kinds of things, about the nature of sin, about suffering, why we suffer. She tries to find out the fate of someone and we think it's someone and is told not to ask specific things of God, but simply to trust in him. Um, And this is where her famous phrase comes in as well. And he says that all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. So that's Julian's visions. Marjorie's very different experience. She says how she first has a vision of Christ shortly after the birth of her first child. So she's still in childbed. She's still um, in pain. And Jesus comes to her, he comes into the room. He sits on the bed and, and he talks with her. And then he um, sort of disappears, he goes up to the ceiling and disappears in this sort of great bright light. And one of the things that's so fascinating with Marjorie is how fixated she is on Jesus being this very handsome, sexually attractive man. It often feels like she's having this passionate love affair with Jesus. And then he he comes to her again and again through her life. So it's not like Julian who has this fairly isolated experience. Marjorie sees Jesus on a regular basis, basically, and has all, all these different conversations with him. And when she talks about it, it's very much like a, he's a human man present with her. The other thing that's fascinating about Marjorie is she often envisions herself within biblical stories. So she imagines, uh, she has this vision and she sees herself at the birth of Jesus, for example. She sees her helping Mary, you know, sort of almost being a, a midwife and and swaddling the baby Jesus. She also sees herself at the death of Jesus and comforting his mother. And I, I found this fascinating. And initially, I thought this was this was Marjorie almost being um, egotistical to sort of imagine that you know she played this this pioneering role in the life of Jesus. But once I was doing a little bit more research, I came across this notion called affective piety. And actually, it wasn't that uncommon in the medieval period for people to imagine themselves in these biblical stories. And I suppose it was a, a way of them of trying to sort of understand what happens and so on. So it wasn't unique to Marjorie to, to imagine herself playing a role within Jesus's life. But it's, it's really fascinating. And when in my own writing, I sort of enjoyed elaborating on those a little bit. I suppose using those stories as a way of highlighting certain aspects of Marjorie's character. So she to me, although she's boastful, she's loud, you know, people have quite strong reactions to Marjorie Kemp. You know, she's not universally loved. Some people find her too much. But I loved her. And I felt that even though there was this kind of incredibly bragging voice, you know, oh, I know Jesus, you know, I, I'm in there with Jesus. I very much felt that she was doing it as a way of um, bolstering herself because she was lonely, because she didn't feel appreciated within her community because she didn't feel that she had someone to comfort her in the way that she needed comforting and the way that she said Jesus comforted her. I found Marjorie quite sorrowful, but also great fun to write because of this kind of, I suppose I want readers to read between the lines with Marjorie's section to not take at quite such face value, because I suppose that's how I I read her. I, I heard this sorrowing behind the boasting and when Marjorie and Julian actually meet um, towards the very end of my novel, 
that was one of the things that I wanted Julian to flag up as well. And one of the things she says about Marjorie is how boastful she is, but also she was one of the loneliest voices I'd ever heard. And to me, that's a really important line in my novel, that Marjorie isn't just a, a figure to roll your eyes at or a figure to be mocked. You know, she has this very human desire for friendship and love to be accepted by her community. And she feels she feels she doesn't get these things. So to me, Marjorie's also a very sad figure. To finish it off, can I get you to read us a bit? Yes, absolutely. So I'm going to read from the very beginning. And the way that the novel is structured is interwoven uh, first person monologues. I will also indicate which person I'm reading from. So I begin with Julian. When I was a child of seven summers, a great pestilence came to our city. As the death carts went up and down the streets, the sounds of their wheels and the horses' hooves mingled with the sounds of weeping, but there was little time for ceremony. The bodies were wrapped in whatever was to hand, sheets, tablecloths, rugs, and heaved onto the cart. I watched from an upstairs window, something both my mother and Nurse Joan had told me not to do. Thump. The cart trundled to the next house. Thump. Sometimes a covering came loose as a body hit the wooden planks, unravelling to reveal a chin or an ear. We were rich. This had always been clear to me. We ate well and our house had many rooms. My clothes were made from Flanders linen and my mother had a garden just for flowers, just for beauty. Imagine, but still we died. The pestilence travelled through the air, like the fog from the river that curled its way under our door in autumn. My father died, and my nurse Joan died, and my older brother William died. Then my younger sister Elizabeth died, whom I had always called Bethy. Thump. Her sweet, plump body was thrown away. The city stank of rotting flesh. I was not allowed to play outside. There were no merchants, no boats, and no markets that year. No crops were planted and no animals were herded through the city gates for slaughter. Even the bells fell silent. Afterwards, my mother and I lived together in a more sombre way. She withdrew into sadness, rarely raising her eyes to me. I learnt to keep my own company, wandering through the empty rooms of the now too big house, tiptoeing so I didn't disturb her. The flowers in her garden still bloomed, but my mother no longer tended them. Marjorie. Christ first visited me some months after the birth of my eldest child, when I laboured for more hours than a single day can hold. I suffered much when I was with child, with vomiting and aches, and I was afraid it was punishment for my sins. I also desired to eat strange things, clods of mud and leather soles from boots. My husband wasn't pleased and told me not to eat these things. He said that if I didn't stop, he would have me imprisoned in my chamber and would put shackles on my arms. At that, I quite lost my reason. I ranted and screamed and tore at my clothes and hair, and I was indeed restrained as my husband had threatened, and he took away my keys. Then my labour pains began, and they were shackles themselves, pinning me down and causing me to roar. My neighbour, Agnes, was at my side to aid me through the birth. But she tutted at my cries and spent more time gossiping outside my room than rubbing my belly with rose oil. When the child emerged, I thought he was the devil come to split me in two and toss my entrails to the dogs. I prayed to St. Margaret to relieve me of the terror and let me die quickly. 
but she did not hear my pleas. So I've been talking to Victoria McKenzie. We've been talking about her debut novel, For Thy Great Pain, Have Mercy on My Little Pain, which is that in the UK from Bloomsbury. Victoria, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.